You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. If you guys would, go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 5. There's also some Bibles that are placed on the back table. If you do not own your Bible, there's some on the connect table at the back of the room. We want you to have your own Bible. So take one of those Bibles. It's our gift to you. If you have your own Bible, please don't steal our Bibles. Okay? We're going to start our new series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. So I'm excited to dive in. I'm excited. I feel like each time we start a new series, uh, it's exciting to dive into something new. But I'm also excited to be back into a book of the Bible, just working through the book of the Bible. And so that's the primary uh, diet that we feed uh, the people that call home at GCC. And so that's what we're going to start doing again this morning. And so Matthew chapter five is where we're going to be. I also just want to say this. I love you guys. And I love our church family. I've been pastoring this church for about six years now. And I feel like over, over the years, I've grown to love our people more and more. And I think part of that is just coming from me knowing you guys, but also feeling known by you guys. And so I'm thankful to be the pastor here at this church to know you guys, be known by you guys. And yeah, so Appreciate it and excited to dive into this new series this morning. So a famous quote, everyone will die, but not everyone really lives. Everyone will die, but not everyone really lives. Famous words from the famous theologian William Wallace from Braveheart said that. Everyone will die, but not everyone really lives. We've titled this series, Live. And I think there's a lot of truth to what William Wallace says, that everyone will die, but not everyone really lives. 2.7 million people die every year in the U.S., 2.7 million. There's over 20,000 cemeteries, registered cemeteries in the U.S., uh, and, and typically you can rent one of those spots for 100 years, and then after that they will recycle it and turn it over to someone new. Another statistic is that people live on average to be 80 years old, 80 years old. That means, through some simple math, that 80 times 365 equals out to 29,200 days that people are allotted to live on this earth. 29,200 days. This also means that if you live on average 80 years, that you get 80 Christmases, 80 Thanksgivings, 80 summers, 80 archery seasons, archery elk seasons, 80 of those, 80 fall Chinook runs for the fishermen and fisherwomen in the room, and 80 whatever that you like that only comes once a year, you get 80 of those. I've used about half my days, which puts me down to about 15,000 days left. And I've used about half my 80s, which puts me down to around 40 of what I get left. Christmases, Thanksgivings, birthdays, summers, all of them. I've used about half. I'm no psychic. I highly recommend that no one ever go and see one, just to be clear. But my prediction is that everyone in this room will face the same end, which is death. Everyone's going to die, unless Jesus returns before that happens. But everyone's going to die. We all have the same destiny. We all have the same fate. We're going to get there at different times. But from the time you're born, and from the time you have your first cry, whatever that moment is, you are immediately from that moment forward, moving towards death and towards your destiny of death. Why is death so painful? You ever thought about that? Why is death so painful? It's because of this, that God created us the big word is in the Imago Dei. He created us in his image. God is life. God has never tasted death nor known death. There is nothing in God that resembles death. God is life. He's immortal. 
And when he created us, he created us in his image to not know and taste death, but to live forever. The reason why you don't long for death for the most part or don't like it is because you actually weren't created for it. So it's an okay thing to be like, ah, I don't like the, the thought of death or dying or that, that's something that makes me kind of go like this. It's because you're created in the image of God who is life. He's the opposite of what death is. In fact, we get to see this in Jesus's life. The shortest verse in the Bible is that Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep at, at, at Lazarus' tomb? Because Jesus got to see the full effect of what sin has. Sin leads to death. When he went to Lazarus' tomb, he got to see what does sin lead to? It leads to this, it leads to death. And Jesus wept, he grieved. He was sympathetic, he was empathetic. He was like, oh, he sees the very thing that has separated man from God and it grieved him. It's the same reason why if you've ever been a part of someone who's passing and that passing takes a while, like, like you grieve watching them go through that pain. You grieve watching them waste away because it's a painful thing to see and witness the result of what sin is, which is never what we were intended for. We are intended to live forever with God in his presence. It's very painful. What a nice, fun, light way to start off a sermon series on live and on living. But one pastor and theologian who I love says this, that you will do well, pastor, to, to consistently put death in front of your people because it changes the perspective on how you live, knowing the one, that one day we're all going to end up at this moment. It changes the way that we live. Since we're all going to face death, since that's going to be the end of all of us, that should change and impact the way that we're living. And, and we want to live. We want to be fully alive here on this earth. It's almost, if there was a Bible verse that, that, that gave some perspective to that, there is. It, it's Amos 5.4. God says this, Israel, seek me and live. It can also be translated, be alive. Seek me and be alive. Like God wants us to live. He wants us to fully live, not just live. Christ said in John 10.10, 10, I did not just come so you could have life. I came that so you could have life abundantly to its fullest. Jesus in, in, in John 15 I think it's verse 10, but, but says that I came that, uh, that my uh, joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He, he doesn't just want us to have joy. He wants us to have full joy. He doesn't just want us to live. He wants us to have an abundant life. He actually cares about our life, the way that it's lived, how we lived. And what better place to look to how we should actually live life and enjoy life than the creator of life. And so this morning, our main point is going to be true happiness comes from handouts. Okay, true happiness comes from handouts. So the reason why I started with death to talk about living is again, that I want us to see this is the end. So what do we do with our time here? And how do we truly live? How do we truly be alive with the time that God has allotted to us here on this earth? With that, let's pray. Father, I know it's not a popular or even fun or warm thing to say, but death does await us all, but it doesn't have to be permanent. Death does not have to equal eternal separation from you. And, and in fact, you've made it possible so that it doesn't have to equal that. Jesus, you came. You wrote yourself into the story to bring redemption, to bring rescue, to bring reconciliation. Please, this morning, through your word and through the gospel, remind us of that. For those who have not heard that, show them their desperate need to actually need to be saved and rescued by you. Father, I know there's many in our 
church family that are hurting and grieving right now. So as we even look at what it is to live or as we look at happiness, God, I know that can seem like such a foreign concept to people that are hurting. But I pray that in the midst of despair, that in the midst of trials, there's a deep sense of peace and joy that comes from knowing that you're a good God who's gone through the trials of this life, who stepped foot on this earth, who's not distant and disconnected, but is very near to us in the midst of our pain, but knows exactly what pain feels like. Father, heal the people in our church family that are sick. Keep us strong and healthy. Let us be wise with the decisions and choices that we make in the season ahead. Let us operate out of your grace, but also let us extend grace to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Where are we headed this morning? First, we're going to work through some of the mechanics and the historical perspectives of the sermon, okay? That's the very first thing that we're going to do. I'm warning you now. This is my warning. That's going to be a little bit of like sitting in a classroom lecture as we unpack some of the context, some of the history, some of the perspectives that have shaped the Sermon on the Mount. So just know that. I don't believe that the point of preaching is merely information. I believe it's supposed to be transformational. So Just know that there is going to be some information, but I hope it's helpful information for you to understand that our Bibles collectively tell this one grand story, how we need to be rescued and God's provided the rescue in and through his son. Okay? Number two, where where we're headed is that Jesus is the ultimate Moses in Exodus, and the Sermon on the Mount is actually pointing to that. And number three, happiness and true happiness comes from handouts that we find only in the gospel. Now, if I got up here this morning and I said this, I'm gonna give you three principles, three steps to live by, and that if you follow these and follow them to the T, you will be a truly happy person, ready? One of them, get at least eight hours of sleep a night. Two, make sure the sheets you climb into are clean. And three, make sure that you go for a morning walk that is nice and calm and quiet, okay? And then I unpack those. I think a lot of people go, I like it. It's three practical, easy steps. I think I can nail those until you have kids. (laughs) And then you go, I can't get eight hours of sleep. I can't get close to that. I also can't just leave the house in the morning or go for a walk. That whole peace and quiet thing's not existent. And so there's some of these things that just aren't a reality. And so what we're going to look at and look at from the text, even as we look at Beatitudes, is the language of them starts with the gospel. Because it's not saying that you will be happy if you do this. It's actually saying, blessed are you. So it starts with this language. Look here, Matthew 5, verse 3. I know I'm starting out ahead here, but the language here is very important. Blessed, this is what we're going to be focused on this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not, you will be blessed if you can be poor in spirit, if you can muster up the strength, if you can perform this, then you will be blessed. It's saying, you're blessed. You're blessed because you are poor in spirit. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to work through some of the mechanics and historical uh, perspectives. We're going to work through Jesus as the ultimate Moses and Exodus and see that true happiness comes from handouts. All right. Historical perspectives. Here we go. In other words, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, what have been some of the perspectives that have shaped church history? Stretching way back, what have been some of those perspectives that, that, that people had on the sermon and on the Sermon on the Mount? What did they think about it and, and whatnot? What do we know about the author of it? Because again, when we open up passage like this, this came at a certain time written by a specific person, written to a specific audience. And so we need to know a little bit about what that is to truly understand what's going on. And so first, if we reach way back in church history, we can go back to John Chrysostom. 
who said this, he saw the sermon as completely in accord with Paul's teachings and providing the vision for the kingdom community that Christ is establishing through his people, okay? Augustine said this, he wrote an entire commentary on this too, but he saw it as the perfect measure of the Christian life. Moving forward to the Protestant Reformation, we have Martin Luther's view, which is, which is seen as a little bit of a negative reading of the sermon because Luther's view was called the impossible ideal view, okay? Luther saw the sermon as high impossible demands to drive people to Christ in faith. It was meant to show our poverty and how incapable we are and cast us upon grace. I'll say this. I believe Luther's view and agree with him to a degree, but also disagree with him to a degree because what Luther was essentially saying is everything in the Sermon on the Mount is gonna show you that you can't do it and you need Jesus. I believe that, but it's also not saying to throw all of it away. It's actually saying we are called to live this way, but in order to try to live this way, we will immediately see we need God's grace and we need the one who's delivering the sermon to rescue us because we can't do it. And so that's, that's a helpful perspective to say that we're not just tossing it aside and saying it's impossible, no one should work. So Calvin has a perspective that, that we will be teaching out of here at GCC. And Calvin's view was more like this. Calvin viewed the sermon as Jesus rescuing the law from the Pharisees who loved to emphasize the external matters instead of the heart. For Calvin, the sermon can be fulfilled by Christians, not by our own doing. We can fulfill it only by the empowered spirit who comes and seals us by grace, okay? So Calvin would say, yes, you're gonna see these are impossible, but what you're also gonna see is that Christ doesn't leave you alone. What he does is empowers you by his spirit to live this way. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like nailing it, you're not reading it right. Let's be honest. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and, and it comes up against a lot of your ideologies or what you think, and, and, and it starts to push against that and you go, I can't do it, you're reading it right. Okay? Because it's meant to drive you to your knees and go, who can do this? And we go, this is the classic elementary answer, Jesus can, right? The one delivering the sermon. The Anabaptists took the sermon to be completely literal and therefore tried to live consistent to that. We'll see there's a lot of difficulties with that, to take it completely literal. A, a, a philosophical reading of this sermon uh, came from Thomas Aquinas, known as uh, the Thomistic reading of it, which is basically just focusing on uh, virtues and ethics, okay? So he's focused on how we live, not why we live this way, which is important because we need to know the motivation for why we should live this way, but Thomas Aquinas was not focused on that, and a lot of the Catholic tradition focuses on that as well. These are all Western Caucasian views, let me give a few others. John Yai explains that many Chinese Christians read the sermon very similar to Anabaptists and take a literal perspective. For them, it's a morality text. They believe that the, that the final aim and goal should be character formation. From a South Korean perspective, many Christians focus on the blessings of the sermon. One scholar said this skewed view is driven by materialistic and prosperity influence. Why? Because a lot of the missionaries that the US has sent out have went over there with a the prosperity gospel, sadly. Next, an African approach to the sermon has a big emphasis on a peacemaker, given the amount of genocide and violence that they've seen. Also, the Africa Bible commentary talks about wealth and money much differently than we do. Think about it. We talk about money, owning homes, owning cars, the stock market, and restaurants. Many of them have none of these things. So our, com our commentaries can be very removed from what's real to them in their lives. Now, I'm not saying that we need to try to figure out how to write our commentaries to adapt to their lifestyles. What I think we need to do is a lot what Dr. Vodi Bakum has done is go over there and teach in their university, plant churches, and they've done that. 
the Reformed Baptist Network has planted a university there where Vody taught at, and they have planted 25 to 30 teachers training their pastors how to speak the language to their people. I think that's awesome. Another perspective of the sermon is also taken from those who have gone through African American slavery, which would take on a whole different meaning as you think about praying for those who persecute you. So those are some of the historical perspectives, but I wanted to let you guys see that throughout history, there's been many perspectives. Many have a lot in agreement with one another, some don't, but what we're going to do is basically teach the Calvin perspective, that this was given by a good God to show that we can't do it, but show that he has empowered us by the spirit to live it out. And actually believe this, that if we do live it out and we are faithful to what it is, I believe it'll radically transform the cities and the neighborhoods that God placed us to be in and be a part of. I believe that because Jesus says that. He calls us to be salt and light, and, and salt has this preservative power to go in and transform a city. And so I believe that as Christians faithfully start to live this out, that it's gonna have an impact on the places that we live, okay? Next, read with me, Matthew chapter five. See in the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Big there, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, first thing, Jesus went up on a mountain. Jesus went up on a mountain. What, what, what we will see is this. First, this is written by a Jewish man who was once a tax collector. So before you throw anyone outside of God's saving grace, know that this man was one of the most rejected people in, in society. Jesus saved him. So Matthew was once a tax collector. So let's start there. Matthew was a Jewish man. Matthew's preaching to a Jewish audience and Matthew's preaching about a Jewish Messiah, okay? This is important because a lot of what Jesus is saying to a Jewish audience would not be popular. When he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, what they were wanting and what the Israelites were wanting is they were wanting someone to come in and rescue them from Roman oppression. They're like, come on, we, we don't need peace. We need someone to bring war. We need someone to do what David did and go to battle and go to war and rescue us and set up your throne here as, as king, and, and Jesus comes in and, and, and he's like, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. It's really hard to adopt an ideology like that in the US and get ahead, which is why we have some pushback to it because we're like, how do you adopt something like that and get ahead? If getting ahead is the end goal in life, look at how Jesus died in his life. He died in giving his life for many. And so first, we have to understand they're gonna have some pushback, but we in this room are gonna have some pushback. Because if you think the Sermon on the Mount is primarily from a left-sided perspective of doing social justice, you're gonna get frustrated. But also, if you think it's from a conservative perspective, more on the right side of overthrowing government and establishing something like that, you're gonna get frustrated. Jesus is targeting the heart, and he's going after the heart. And I think it's a good thing Again, that if we start to notice things that are pressing up against us to go, why? What's in my heart that I don't like with this? But also, the beauty of verse one is that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. There's so much there. Matthew is a brilliant writer. And he's showing that this is the new Exodus. This is the greater Moses. Because if you go back to the book of Exodus and look at chapter one, it starts with the genealogy of names. Go to the beginning of Matthew 1, and what's it start with? Genealogy of names. If you go to Exodus, 
Later on, what you will see is there's a mass killing of babies. Go to Matthew chapter two and you'll see there's a mass killing of babies. You will also see that the Israelites fled to Egypt for, ref uh, for refuge. What you'll also see is that Je Jesus fled to Egypt for refuge. What you'll also notice is this, is that Jesus in Matthew chapter four spent 40 days in the wilderness facing temptation. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness facing temptation. What he is showing you is that this person who is here offers the greater exodus, the greater deliverance, the greater freedom than Moses did. Moses, again, Jesus went up on a mountain. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law, the 10 commandments, okay? Jesus goes up on the mountain to say, I'm the one who wrote those and I'm here to fulfill them. Cities were built around ziggurats, not cigarettes for those of you that might have misheard, ziggurats, okay? And what they were is high places in, in a city, much like skyscrapers for a city to be built around, around. They were places of idolatry in a much, much same way skyscrapers could be for people that are just pursuing all of life and wealth and health and happiness, right? So cities were built around these. And the premise of a ziggurat was this, is that if I can get up to a high place, what I can do is I can climb the ladder and get closer to a God. Jesus blows that up right here. He's saying, it's, it, it's not about you trying, striving, climbing, getting up. It's about God, the author, coming down. It, it, it's not about you working your way up through religion by climbing this mountain. It's actually about my presence being here with you to rescue you and do what you cannot do. You know what else points to this? Jesus was baptized, Matthew 3. All of this is happening. The early onset of, I, I think this is incredible. Just to see the way that our Bibles have been written was just such brilliant, brilliant penmanship. It is this, Jesus was baptized, showing this, that, that what he's going to do is ultimately bring you redemption, bring you through baptism, bring you through the water. That's what baptism is symbolic for, bringing you through it and, and bringing you to freedom, out of slavery, out of sin, out of all that, out of oppression, into new life. What did God do for the nation of Israel in the Exodus? You see, they're, they were backed with their walls, or, or they were backed up against the Red Sea. They had their backs there, and they had the whole Egyptian army pursuing them. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, you can write this down, highlight it later, um, is Exodus 14, 14. Because God provides comfort to them and say, hey, th this is not your fight. This is my fight, and I'm gonna fight this one for you. Because they can't do anything. They're completely and utterly helpless. They have the Red Sea behind them. They have an army pursuing them from this way. They're like, what the heck are we gonna do? God's like, this is my fight. Not, I got three things for you to work up to. If you can do these, maybe we'll work out a deal. I'll split the sea. God splits the sea. He brings them through and delivers them to the other side, okay? You gotta see this. God didn't say, hey, I'll deliver you from the Egyptians if you obey the 10 commandments. I will bring you out of your slavery and oppression if you obey me. What God said is this, through the actions, is I've brought you out of bondage, I've brought you out of slavery, I've delivered you through the water and I've brought you into freedom. Now here's the 10 commandments. That's the difference of the gospel of good news versus moralism of try harder. So if someone's saying, how can I explain the gospel? Use the Exodus, use that story to say, here's a picture from a narrative of God showing what he does. He delivers, he brings freedom through the water. The Exodus means the way out and he places them in safety and then gives them a law and says, now obey this. He's not saying obey it and then maybe we'll work something out. That's massive for our understanding. But all of this again and again and again is showing 
Matthew's showing, hey, you know the Exodus story, Israelites. You know this story. You remember all these things. And so he's, he, he, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of a sudden sound familiar. They're like, this, wait. And then Jesus is like, now I'm here on the mountain. And he's teaching them. You know, Jesus could start off his sermon any way he wanted to, any way he wanted to. Look at how he starts it off. Verse three, blessed. I'm gonna teach you guys this word because it's gonna, we're gonna be in it for eight weeks. We're gonna work through each one of these eight beatitudes, okay? Um, beatitude, that word means uh, blessed are or happy are, okay? So, so blessed, blessed are. But this word here that pops up here, verse three, blessed. I'm gonna need you to get in, in tune with your inner Boston accent, okay? Because if, if you say something like, that guy took Makah, if you can say Makah, my car, Makah, and then, and then the last word is yos. So makaios is the word that's used over and over and over again. So you can say makah, someone's got makah, eos. That's the Greek word, okay? Now you know Greek, and you know this word that actually means happy. So it can, it can be translated, in some translations it is translated instead of blessed, happy. Here's the question. Does God want you to be happy? Does God want you to be happy? Is God a happy God? Yes. We have some verses that I want us to walk through here to first unpack this. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, Makaios, that's the word used there. What is it saying? In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the happy God. That's how Paul refers to God in the beginning of 1 Timothy. Same word here, Makaios, is the same word that's used there. Same word that's used in 1 Timothy 6, the next verse, in reference to God which he will display at the proper time, who is the happy, he's the blessed, Makarios, and sovereign, only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. It changes the perspective a little bit to think of God as a happy God. And many of us maybe didn't grow up with that kind of perspective, but God's demeanor, as Paul talks about him, is this, Makarios, this happiness, this blessed. This is how Jesus starts off his sermon. He says, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. He could... I think we want happiness, right? If, if, I, if I said, hey, raise your hand if you want to be a happier person, and like I would assume everyone would raise their hand unless you're like too cool to raise your hand, which means you probably need to be a happier person, right? But most, <laughs> most people would raise your hand because you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I could grow on this. And so if, if we're thinking, man, how in the world do we do this? How, how do we become happier? The world steps in and I've read online Thing after thing, article after article about how to be happy, and everything was this. Here's what you do. Here's what you need to perform. Here's what you need to adopt. Here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. Jesus starts off with, it's not anything you can do. What he's essentially saying is this, happy are those that are spiritually bankrupt. So Jesus starts off with the foundation of happiness. Listen, the author of life, the author of life himself who created uh, mankind, who knows how we will best live and be alive, how we'll most be happy, writes himself into the story, starts off a sermon declaring to everyone, and he says, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Wow, that's gonna go against what our world and culture says. That's gonna push back against our rationale. At the end of last year, our elders get together and uh, at nighttime talk about, everything random, right? And I don't know how it came up, but I essentially told our elders that I think that I could take a silverback gorilla, okay? True story. I don't appreciate your laughter because I actually believe that, so. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, 
we were talking about this and they were like, <laughs> Rick, that, that essentially is not even rational. And, I, and then like, so after this, they sent me, uh, I think Ronnie sent me this. It's a, it's a picture. You win <laughs> one billion dollars if you can beat one of these three in a fight with no weapons. Who are you picking? I'm like, taking the one that's most human-like, right? The gorilla. So Ronnie, Ronnie sends this because he's like, Rick, I know you, you think you can beat up a silverback gorilla. It came down to it. And they're like, you know how strong they are? I'm like, you know how strong I am? I'm, like, I'm fighting dirty too, you know? And so our family after this and after all this, we go to the San Diego Zoo a few weeks back, okay? And so we walk up to one monkey cage <laughs> and, and the monkey starts doing stuff. And she's, my wife is like, the thing's watching you. I'm like, yeah, it knows, you know? And so, and, and I'm like, it knows. And so... And so then we make our way over to the silverbacks and the thing is just sitting there, harmless as can be, minding its own business with its feet on the glass and I'm over there like, <laughs> I'm like sizing them up. Everyone else is like thinking, you know, like, oh, maybe we evolved from this or some other people are thinking or, oh, look at this, isn't this fun to watch? And I'm sitting there thinking, I think I got this, you know? <laughs> I think this is what I would do in this situation. And, and my wife is like, you are not rational. And that is not rational to even think stuff like that. And so I, I'm willing to admit that's probably not rational. Do I believe it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but I'm admitting it's not rational. When I'm questioning what is rational, here's what helps me. If there was a verse in the Bible that said you cannot beat up a silverback gorilla, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do it. When I'm questioning what's rational in the world versus what God's word says, I'm always going to go with this. And so maybe your rationale tells you something like, this is what I truly need to be happy. And, and, and our functional rationality does stuff like this, is that I need a happier marriage. I need to make more money. I need to have a different job. I need to finish my career. I need to get more sleep. I need all of these things. And if I have these things, this will be the foundation for a start of happiness when our rationale leads us somewhere and the author and creator of life steps in and says, let me tell you how you will find true happiness, let's go with him. Because it starts off a lot different than what our world says. It doesn't say, blessed are those who have big degrees, blessed are those who have accomplished much, blessed are those who have done this, who have played college sports, anything like that. It, it says, blessed and happy are those who come to the table and go, God, I got nothing. You wanna know what spiritual maturity is? It's people who are humbly, absolutely 100% needy and dependent upon God and his grace. It is an absolute understanding that you are spiritually bankrupt, which means this, you cannot pay your debt. And so the same man that climbed the mountain here to deliver this sermon is the same man who climbed Calvary and climbed that mountain and said, I'm here. I preached and taught the law but now I'm here to fulfill every way you have disobeyed it. I'm here to suffer, I'm here to be punished. I went on that mountain, I'm here on this mountain, and I'm here to pay the price. I'm here to cancel your debt. I'm here to pay the record of your sin that stands against you. And here's the thing, Jesus trades in our credit score, which is not 250 or something like that, it's awful, it's negative. It's our infinite record that stands against a holy God. And what he says is, here's a perfect score, it's my score. In every way in life where you have failed, I was perfect. The, 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 the 40 days in the wilderness, every temptation that was thrown at me, I passed and I was victorious. And what I brought to the cross was my victory, my obedience, my perfect life. And what I do is I trade your spiritual bankruptcy for my absolute perfect credit score and no one will ever change that. It's done through faith in Christ. 
There is something to be said and seen about those who know that when they stand face to face with God, their only response is to fall flat on their knees and say, I got nothing. There is nothing in and of me of my moral performance that I could say, accept me on this. Look at the people that came face to face with God. Our problem is we square off with man. We need to square off with God. The men and people who did that in the Bible, Isaiah chapter six, he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Peter, whenever he came face to face with the glory of Jesus was like, woe is me. People that came uh, face to face with angels that were in the presence of God still had that same impact. When we come face to face with a holy and good and righteous God, we don't go, here's what I got. We go, I've got nothing. I need you. And that's why I would say true happiness comes from handouts. No one in this life likes handouts, but the message of Christianity, the gospel, is a free, complete handout. It's totally, completely free, and it's a handout. It's given to you. And we push back in that because we're like, no, 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 I like to work for stuff. I, I competed in uh, martial arts for years. And one thing you learn about martial arts is different cultures have different etiquettes. And, and some cultures, including Japanese cultures, don't like you to reach down a hand after you've defeated your opponent. That's disrespectful. It's a handout. Much of life, we don't like a handout. We're like, no, no, I want to work for it. And then the gospel comes in, and it's like, the only posture you can take is one like this. I've got nothing. Like the tax collector who beat his chest and said, what was me? Jesus also much like we see in Exodus 14, 14, is saying, this is my fight, not yours. I'm going to battle here. I'm going to war. I'm doing this. And then I'm giving you all that's mine. So as Christians, we can almost think of it like this. When we sit before God, when we wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, is we can sit with hands open, not, Lord, I bring you this, I bring you my last night. I got nothing. But with hand outs, and, and with our hands actually out, what we start to understand is this is what Christ does. He's like, here's my righteousness. Here's my perfection. Here's my holiness. Here's my goodness. Here's my beauty. Here's my sinlessness. Here's my victory. Here's all this. And then what we realize, what we present to God is not our sacrifice, but the sacrifice of the son is what we get to present to God. True happiness comes from handouts. I'm gonna share the story and then give us a couple points of application. This is not original to me. It's uh, heard uh, Tim Keller share this, which I love the story. But there's a, a famous author, primarily of the 20th century, and her name was Dorothy Sayers. I'm gonna share this for. Uh, Dorothy wrote uh, just a bunch of novels, but uh, a, a series on Lord Peter uh, Wimsey, okay? So it's a character that she created who was a detective. So she wrote all, I, I think this is about a dozen of them, okay? And so here, here is this famous fictional writer who graduated from Oxford and, and a little bit of a mysterious writer, okay? She creates this character named Lord Peter Wimsey, uh, who's a detective. And then what happens in one of her later books? All of a sudden, a mysterious woman gets wrote into one of the books. There's this woman named Harriet Vane who gets written into the story. Who is she? She's an Oxford graduate. She's a mysterious writer. Do you know what people think happened, she fell so in love with the character that she created that she wrote herself as the author into the story. You know what Jesus is showing by being here on this earth on the Sermon on the Mount? Is that the author's here. I wrote myself in to bring true happiness, to bring true life, to rescue and redeem those who I've come after. 
His very presence is saying, the author's here. How amazing would it be to sit down with Michelangelo and have him explain the Sistine Chapel? How amazing would it be to sit down with Leonardo da Vinci and have him explain the uh, magnum opus and, and these famous drawings? You would, get, you would sit with the author and have him walk you through Right now, in our Bibles, we have the author in human flesh saying, this is it. Trust me. My life and the way that it ends will prove how much I love you. My wife says I'm a bit of an extremist. My other friends say I do things in excess. Here's what I'll say. This is where I'm going to be an extremist and give, uh, uh, give an excess, is God's infinite love that's poured out, and, and his, his very presence on earth was making that clear. God is giddy over children. Brad and Jenna just had their first getaway from their son, Riggs. I said, were you giddy to see your son? He was like, yes. Like, I remember the first time we came back to see our kids, I was just like so giddy from being away. And God's constant response to those that are in Christ is that. God is a happy God for his children and he wants us to live a happy life, but he knows that comes through us first recognizing we have need for him. If you stand up this morning in your seat and someone grabs you, like I just saved you, you're like, you might be like, what? Because you don't think you need to be saved. But when you understand the magnitude of your depravity, then you go, wow, thank you God for the redemption. Jesus is focusing on perspective. If your perspective starts with, my greatest need is something I can't accomplish, but that it's got to be accomplished for me, that changes the way you wake up in the morning. It changes the way you go to bed at night. Because you don't wake up going, I'm entitled, I deserve this. It's like your greatest need is you're helpless to accomplish, and Jesus does it. Let me give a quick few things, uh, three things as far as application goes. First is start with this. I'm actually going to give to you, is that as true happiness comes from handouts, I'm going to say this, that true Christians live with their hands out, okay? So as we receive a hand out, we also extend our hands out to the people. Do we not want the people that God has placed in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, people in our lives, to experience the author of life and true happiness? We can't do that without stepping outside of our comfort zones and living missionally, which means living with intention and on purpose, stepping towards those who don't know Jesus. So the first thing is, is a Christian who, who, who's received a handout completely free starts to live with their hands out towards others who don't know Christ. Next, here's a challenge. I would challenge and encourage everyone in this room, because I want to see, I do, I want to see our city transform. I, I would encourage you over this next month is to do just that. Invite someone into your home or step into the home of someone that you don't know because people are searching for happiness. And we're like, we got it. We know where to find it. Let's step into their lives. So my challenge is this. If we'll either have dinner or have someone over for dinner at someone's house over this next month. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the creator of life and stepping in. We recognize that we need you. And I pray that we would grow in an ever-increasing acknowledgement of that. In your name, amen.